a Black Executive Perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. A Black Executive Perspective. But a big part of it was understanding that this is who I am and I want to really spend some time uh, and some courage around understanding that and, and going as deep as I can with this. This is what I do. What's the alignment that's possible? Because there are always going to be trade-offs. There are, there are always going to be aspects of myself which I need to, I'll be required to, to place aside for a moment. It's- Welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, your guide, your sensei, Tony Tidbit. And you know, one of the things I struggled with in my life is really trying to figure out who I really am. You know, and I think that's a journey that all of us go on from the time we come into the world. We really try to figure out who we are, what we like, and it's a struggle. And obviously... There's a conflict from, you know, what we think society wants us to be, what our family wants us to be. And I was no different, right? I remember my mother telling me something when I was a kid and she, you could be, you're good at math. You could be an accountant. So I was like, I'm going to be an accountant, right? However, at the end of the day, it's important that we have the self-discovery in terms of who we really are. And a lot of times we think it has to do with, you know, our titles at work or, you know, the different accomplishments that we had, as well as our failures. And we know that's not entirely the case. So today, our guest, James Jones, will share his story and what he discovered on his journey through this thing we call life. Jim, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast. It's great to be here. (laughs) Buddy, I'm so excited that you're here. And especially we're going to talk about, you know, self-discovery. And, um, you know, it's something that we struggle with. I still struggle with. I think, you know, most people very rarely, you know, people understand who they are, why they're on this planet, what they're supposed to do. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story and providing some insights to our audience. So before we get into the heavy stuff, my friend, give us a little background on you. Well, what shall I say? I'm a, an executive coach, a certified executive coach and DE&I consultant. I live in New York City, in Brooklyn, more precisely, in Bed-Stuy, more precisely than that. Um, yeah, I've been here now for off and on for any number of years. I've lived abroad, uh, but my, 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 my path always took me back to Brooklyn. So here I am. <laughs> oh, so Brooklyn is the key, though, right? So why do you it, say your path always took you back to Brooklyn? Well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, quite frankly, and uh, went to school in Boston, in Cambridge, to Harvard, and uh, came to New York initially to go to Juilliard, the American Opera Theater, and paths took me away from New York after that. I won a Fulbright Fellowship. I went to Europe. I was there for about five years or so, came back, lived in Brooklyn again, in fact, in the same building I'd lived in before, and uh, then I moved out to Seattle, came back to New York, lived in the same apartment building I lived in before. So I'm a real homing pigeon, I think. And um, yeah, and here I am. Could I leave Brooklyn now? I probably could. 
but I take Brooklyn with me. I think wherever I went. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, listen, when you keep coming back to the same place, you're right. It's part of who you are. Indeed. So, it, no, go ahead. What are you going to say? I said, indeed it is. <laughs> yeah. It's part of who you are. Right. So, and look, I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I still, I live in Connecticut, but I still read Detroit news and free press every day. Still keep up on everything going on in Michigan. So definitely relate to that. However, my friend, you've had a very, you know, and you just spoke to it at a high level. You've had a very uh, unique journey. I mean, St. Louis, Juilliard, Harvard, you didn't say it, but Columbia, uh, executive life coach. So, I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> that's us. That number one, that is outstanding, which is awesome. However, why don't we, we back up a little bit, you know, because I love to hear, you know, from St. Louis to Juilliard is, is you know, I don't think those two words go together. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, give us a little bit, you know, from your background in terms of, you know, where you started in St. Louis and, you know, to the next levels in terms of how you got out. I think mine was sort of the classic social studies story. I came from a single parent household. I had 11 brothers and sisters a single mother, not an unusual tale to be told in many of our cities at a particular era. Um, I was the seventh of 11 children. Spent most of my time, my early years, with my grandmother, quite frankly, and that was sort of, I think, where my core values, I thought, were beginning to be sort of sown. I was a very shy young person. Uh, uh, my mother had a, <laughs> a rough mouth, let's just say, and she took no prisoners. And I always sort of cowed from that. My grandmother was a very sort of saintly woman. Said, well, you got to understand your mama. She got to go out and work every day. And so I want you to be a good Christian boy, Jimmy Jones, and understand. <laughs> and one day I, uh, I, got a, I was in music always. I always sang. And I got a, a scholarship to go to a, a music school in Illinois, Illinois Wesleyan University. I'll never forget. And for my family, that was really something, someone going to college for first in generations. But then, out of the blue, some dude showed up at my high school, and he said, I got called to the principal's office, and this man said, I'm a recruiter from Harvard. And I said, how do you spell Harvard, sort of thing? <laughs> <laughs> but then, for whatever reason, he saw something in me that uh, he decided to groom me and took me to Harvard. I got into Harvard, and... Uh, the poor music school got sort of tossed to the side. There were many people who had grown up with me singing who that was a grave mistake. And who knows? In your life, you look back and you say, what's an error or what was sort of sent by the, the, the universe for me to pursue? <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on one second, because you just you went from you. you I mean, buddy, that's a lot. So let's back up a little bit. OK, okay. so 11 siblings. Yes. How was that? And you're number seven. Okay, yeah. so tell me a little bit, you know, single-parent household in St. Louis, 11 kids, your mother. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Oh, what can I say about that? I think, you know, again, I don't want to generalize, but being one of 11 was almost like being an only child in that my older siblings were so much removed from me and the younger so much removed until much that I was likely to have to contend with. I, I contended with, if you will, as, as, as a single entity. Having said which, very loving household, without a doubt. We were not kissy, huggy people by any stretch of the imagination. But food was on the table, such as it was. And to me, that's love. Do you know what I mean? That was my mother's <laughs> love language. You had, the, you had the light on and you had food on the table. You'd go somewhere else for a hug, sort of. <laughs> we were very 
clear around that. <laughs> and That's again, awesome. Because, you know, I'm not sure that worked for everyone as well as it did for some, but uh, looking back and, you know, they say you, what is it? You, you experience forward, but you learn backwards. There was a point in my experiencing forward that I arrived at a learning moment. I thought, ah, I get it. Now, I never recall one day when I was, uh, one evening when I was in sort of my second semester of being a, uh, a sophomore at Harvard, I called my mother in the middle of the night and she said, James Clarence, she always called me James Clarence, I said, mother, and I was such a snotty little thing, I called my mother, this little black boy from St. Louis calling his mother, mother, hello, <laughs> that should tell you something right away, I said, mother, I get you, do you know what she said to me? I knew you would, and she hung up on me, and that was the beginning of a whole new relationship. <laughs> it didn't need more explanation. It needed nothing. I got it. I also developed a very bad mouth because of that. <laughs> so when you said you got it, are you saying that you understood the responsibility and all the things that your mother did to bring you guys up? Is that what you're saying, or what? is it something 100%. different? 100%. I understood her. I, I began to empathize with this woman and her struggles and, and the kinds of decisions she was making and priorities she was setting, which in my little corner, I didn't get as right. a growing up. Uh, perhaps someone more aware than I might have gotten it sooner. But the moment I got it, I've never looked back from it. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, I, and I think, I think we all at some point, most kids struggle with that, right? And I think that's one of the main things that parents always try to you know, wake their kids up in terms of, do you know what this takes to do, right? It, money is not growing on trees. I have to go out and, you know, <laughs> do whatever I need to do to take care of you. So I think, you know, we, I think I can hear my mother in my ear saying that double A's looking, nodding his head. His parents <laughs> said the same thing to him. So, and you know what? And I'm saying the same thing to my daughters right now. <laughs> all right. So, so it's something that we all, you know, we all struggle with, but it was great. And, and even though she probably you know, was a short, uh, short um, answer, I'm really sure she was appreciative that you at least reached out and said, hey, I finally figured it out. This answer was it was it was short in terms of the number of words she used, but it was decades in depth. Believe me, <laughs> there was no need for any more. We understood from that moment. And again, that understanding never, ever left me and it never left that relationship. So that's awesome. So, so seven of 11, matter of fact, buddy, that's, I love it. No wonder seven of 11. <laughs> so you, you get, you, no wonder blessed. So how did you, seven out of 11 uh, siblings, um, how did you get involved in music? Where did that come from? And I was, you know, singing as a, a young child, I sang in local choruses and all of that. And someone as a, some member of the church, in fact, as a gift, they said they were going to give me three months of voice lessons. I was like 15 or so. My voice hadn't changed yet. But I went to this fellow who ended up becoming quite a famous vocal coach in New York. Uh, his name was Oren Brown. And he took me on. And at the end of the three months, he said, my gift to uh, what's going on with your people, as he puts it, and I'll never forget, will be to make sure that you get the best that I can offer you. And no one's going to have to pay the, the, you know, the, the, put money in the till for that. And I stayed with him until... Again, I went from there to Harvard. When I graduated from Harvard, by then he had gone to Juilliard as a teacher and, you know, got accepted into Juilliard and I joined him there too. So. Wow. So let's back up a little bit. He, he said that I want to make sure your people um, can maximize, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing, maximize your uh, opportunity. Is that, what did he mean by that? 
Gosh, I don't want to speak for him. Let me tell you what I what I lived from that. We, okay. Was that you are a young, poor, black, talented, intelligent, I suppose. At least that was his perspective. And this is my contribution, if you will, to what was beginning to be a nascent aspect of the, the struggle. The you know, the people are people, black people demanding voice and all of that. Mm. And his way of I don't mean to speak for him. This was his contribution. I hope he also saw talent in me. So, <laughs> well, I would. I mean, I mean, and I'm pretty sure he did because eventually you ended up going to Juilliard and stuff to yeah. that nature. I don't think he just you know slid you in the back door and said no. you know. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure he saw the talent. Let me. So, what what type of music? So you said choir. So what what type of music was were you singing? Aha! Uh-huh. When I went to Harvard, I was an English major, but by end of my sophomore year I was already singing professionally around around Boston and by the time I was at the end of my junior year I think I was spending 75 percent of my time performing I was an opera singer and uh, that's what I was doing and so the path to Juilliard was already being sort of paved so the moment I graduated I went to New York so how did you get into opera I don't know because <laughs> <laughs> usually people Usually people say they start singing in the church, they, you know, stuff to that nature, and then they go off and start a group opera. How, were you exposed to opera when you were a kid? Tell us a little bit about that. Not at all. Not at least until I got to high school. I guess something in the quality of my voice um, suggested that it was a voice, particularly when my voice changed, that was developing into um, uh, what someone heard as having operatic qualities about it really and I don't want to make it any more romantic than that is what it is I will tell this anecdote my voice actually changed that at one night when I was on stage to be more correct about that my voice had changed when no one had heard me sing and I'll never forget singing some enchanted evening on this big stage with all these people and my teacher was booming in the in in in, in, in the in the in the background and when we finished singing, the piano was playing. I turned to the audience and I said, now I'm going to sing this to you in my other voice. Meanwhile, my teacher's fainting backstage. And <laughs> I sang the whole thing over again in baritone. <laughs> oh, my God. So you were so so now. Yeah, and again, I'm ignorant to opera to be, you know, my mother, she grew she was from Long Island. She, you know, she exposed me to classical music. She used to love classical music. I don't know opera. The only thing I know about opera is when I was a kid watching Bugs Bunny, Looney Tunes, and Elmer Fudd was saying, kill the wabbit. Kill. I mean, that's all I know, right? So so tell us, because, you know, I number one, it's and again, I'm this is my ignorance, so I'd love for you to educate me and, and maybe other people who are not aware of opera. So, yeah, how did you get exposed to opera? Again, it was just the fortunes of, of being around people who had themselves that exposure and who invited me in. Again, you know, coming from where I came from, I was not likely to have much exposure to it. But, you know, very early on, I was placed in gifted programs and in, in, in milieus where people could could sponsor that type of exposure. So I was very mm-hmm. fortunate. That was, that's a blessing, right, to be able to be exposed and not only be exposed, be able to actually participate and yeah. become really good at it, which you did. Okay. Um, so did you envision 
at this time frame that you were going to, this was going to be, you know, we talk about identity and discovery and all this. Did you envision that you would be, and that you traveled around and you actually went to plays and performed, you know, around the country. And I think you also went to, to Paris and performed there, right? Did you think that this was going to be your, you know, career? I didn't, you know, to me, there was nothing else but music, but opera. And even though I majored in English at, at Harvard, I never lost the slightest thought but what I would be an opera singer. And I still identify as an artist wearing corporate drag, if you will. I very much so. I know my sensibility. I own it. <laughs> so going to Harvard, was that, what, was it because of music? How did that opportunity become real? I think it became, I got the opportunity because of, I was something different, you know. God knows I'm not a great intellectual, but I was smart enough, you know, that I could pass the very basics of getting in. And I had the music, and I suspect that those who were making those selections thought that was different to invite into Harvard. I can imagine. So so what was the feeling, single black kid growing up in St. Louis, now going to one of the most prestigious universities in the world? How, how did that, did that ring did, did you were like wild by it or was it was just a regular thing oh you know i can look back on it now and come up with all kinds of descriptors which uh perhaps i weren't feeling at the time it was you know culture shock you know being dirt poor all of a sudden being around people who had 150 million dollar you know trust funds there was no connection i could make with any of that and nor did i have to struggle with that connection because i was protected in a sense i was cocooned because of music quite frankly uh Harvard took care of me, without a doubt, without a doubt. I never had the slightest want for four years. Neither money for going home or going on trips. I went on world tours and all of that. And again, coming from a family of 11, you know, kids of an uneducated mother. So I was extremely fortunate. I'm a horrible school chauvinist. I'm not a snob about where I went to school, but I definitely wear the crimson. I do. <laughs> so you know they just had the Harvard-Yale game. Uh, last week, though, do you ever go to you ever go to the Harvard Yale game? Yeah, I would oh, are you don't want to? Are you ready to get off the podcast? And I said, Yeah, <laughs> I went to the Harvard Yale game to be seen, not for anything. <laughs> Were they doing something else out there but celebrating me? How's that for ego? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, look, that's that's part of going to to going there, right? Is because it's part of now. And again, we're talking about identity and self discovery yeah. and stuff of that nature. We so. Are. That that is um, that is awesome. So, how in in terms you were you said you were protected. You had a cocoon, that did. which which was great. Did you interact with the other student body? And if you did, what was the? And you said, "Hey, I'm an opera singer. I'm on the choir." And obviously, the the black population at Harvard, I can imagine, you know, when you went there was was minimal, right? So, what was that experience like? It was, again, I was so protected. I, I, I don't want to take any credit to myself, but I recall there was a picture on the front of the Harvard Crimson, which was our local, you know, the Harvard's newspaper, and I was standing next to the president of the Harvard who had gone to a concert in which I was in the night before and stopped to speak to me on Harvard Yard, is where the freshmen live, and the Crimson had captured a photo of it, and they said, Jimmy Jones with a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I was obscenely popular, and I want to say that now because I want to then peel back that to speaking of identity. I was really horribly popular. Harvard has what they call the only, at the time, the only four elected positions Harvard had was what they call class marshals. 
and they, for the last hundred years or so, had always been the wealthy white athletes. I was number two. Wow. In all the papers, it was the first time Harvard had had a black um, person in, in, in that role, and I just got, as a class marshal, it was just one of those things. In fact, in my graduation, the four of us were standing together, and I was wearing a red something other, and one of the, the, the Harvard alums, some government official, came to me and said, we invited you here, and you, you're such a rebel wearing all of that red. He did not know that I was a class marshal. And, and, and let me stay with that for one more, Tony. I announced these things not as any way. It, it was a fortune. I, I, I grew from that. But it took years to peel back a lot of that to discover my identity at the core of that. And that was work, and that was pain. But I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that in peeling it back, I was able to hold on to what, for me, I valued from that experience. But believe me, it took some peeling back. <laughs> Indeed, it did. So when you say it took some peeling back, what do you mean by that? Can you share a little bit more? Yeah, if I can. Um, when I went to Juilliard, that was sort of the beginning of it. I was in the American Opera Theater there, right after Harvard. That was my first time having to confront that I really didn't have the emotional maturity that perhaps I would have developed had I gone to a state school or whatever. I'd been so protected by Harvard and its, its traditions and its money and all of that. And now I'm thrown into the pot with, you know, hardworking opera singers who, you know, you know take no prisoners. And I, had, I did not have the emotional um, solidity to be able to, to confront that in, in a way that was anything but painful. It was a very difficult time for me. And I ended up leaving... Juilliard after a year, make a long story very short, even though I went back later to, re- to complete um, you know, that operatic program, I just didn't have the maturity, emotional maturity, emotional uh, in- in- intelligence, whatever you may call it, to confront New York and what it meant to be a young black person on the streets of New York. I had nothing to prepare me for that. Nothing. Wow. And, <laughs> and, and, and which is interesting because growing up poor in St. Louis, which your mother probably was scrapping, you know, just to be able to take care of you and your, and your, and your siblings. Um, and then, I mean, that takes a lot of, that's an attitude itself, right. In terms of scrapping, in terms of, you know, whatever comes up going, she's going out slaying lions and then coming home and, and taking care of you guys. So none of that kind of passed on to you. If I'm hearing you correctly, because you were jet, not jettisoned, you were, you know, uh, taken into the bosom uh, because of your talent into Harvard and very well protected, if I'm hearing you correctly, and everything was taken care of for you. And then after you graduated, now you're out on the street and it's every man for himself. Very much. <laughs> right. And and you're having a, a hard time dealing with that. Is that what I'm hearing? Tony, you are. And I think you say none of it was passed on. It was passed on. The growth was about clearing out the debris mm. <laughs> of Harvard and any number of other things. And again, you know, I'm a huge Harvard uh, devotee. But that aspect of Harvard, if you will, and that type of cocoon, it took me some time to sort of clear that aside to understand exactly what was at the core of what my mother taught me. And what was that? What was at the core that she taught you? A kind of self-reliance under extreme circumstances. I'm not telling a tale that, you know, we, we've not all experienced at any time, but it just took me a longer while perhaps to get there and to understand that at the end of the day, 
what you are, who you are, what you value has got to be where you, where you, where you plant your flag. Nothing else will, will work. And I'm not clear that I got that. Right. Well, <laughs> long time. That day, you know, that telephone call to my mother was the beginning of that. Right. But it took me a while to, to, to connect the dots, if you will. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's interesting the way you position that because I, you know, and it's, thank you for sharing. I think that's a struggle we all, and, and maybe not into your um, particular story, but I, I think, you know, a lot of times, you know, you could, for you to be able to, to, to self-reflect and really, like you said, peel the onion back and really look deep within in terms of, yeah, I went here, I had this opportunity, um, but at the end of the day, it's not really all who I am. Right. It's it's an experience. I take some stuff out of it. It helped me open in some areas. It helped me grow. But in other areas, it didn't help me grow. Is that what I mean? Are we on the same page, my friend? We are. Maybe a slight nuance of difference would be a slight shade of difference between it all helped me grow. Gotcha. It all, I just had to come to a better understanding of, of self-awareness around how the crevices I was creating for myself and the things that really were leveraging growth, you know, and I don't mean to speak in sort of coaching terms, but that's really came down to it. And again, I'm talking, you know, experience or learn backwards. It took a lot of, I'm continuing on, I'm on that learning curve still, but you come to this point where you go, okay, <laughs> guess what? <laughs> you, you still got stuff to figure out. <laughs> pick all the cotton you want. You still got to go out tomorrow and pick some more. And little by little, your 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 bag will be <laughs> as full as it's going to be. And if it's not, we're going to blame. Not your mother, not Harvard, not anybody else. Now, I don't mean to be flip around it, but I really do feel that way. <laughs> no, no, no. I love that. I mean, I, and, and look, I think that is awesome. You were saying a minute ago that you were in Juilliard. You went to Juilliard and then you left. All right. You didn't finish. You came back and finished later. What What happened there? I went downstairs one day at Juilliard feeling miserable about something. And, uh, and uh, I was at a, a news kiosk and this man, you know, you're in New York, some dude walking up to you that, you know, you wonder what's going on there. And he said, are you an actor? I said, no, I'm not an actor. You know, I go to Juilliard. He said, I'm a director and I'm doing a play off Broadway called Shoes. I'll never forget it. And boy, when I pick, when I think of one of the roles, you dead on for it. I said, well, I'm not an actor. He said, would you come down anyway and, and talk to us? So I went down and you know, they hired me to do this play. It was an off Broadway play, Equity. And I quit Juilliard the next day. Wow. Again, I had no <laughs> emotional intelligence. I had no way of, of thinking through these things with any type of real strategy. It felt good to do it, and I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> so you and quit Juilliard to I do did. this off-Broadway play on a whim. Uh, and an agent saw me in the play, loved me, signed me on, and, and again, came to another crossroads, sent me out to, to uh, uh, Indiana as a guest artist to do a play there, to start a play there, and to give lectures and all of that. And whilst I was there... Uh, they, learned, they, they knew I had sung. I was asked to sing at someone's home at some sort of dinner party. At that dinner party was this woman who was a conductor from New York. And she said, oh, no, you need to be on the operatic stage. Do you know I got back to New York and I went to my agent and I said, 
uh, I don't want to do this anymore. He said, dude, you ever hear a thing called a contract? (laughs) 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 But she was kind enough to let me go. And of course, by the time I reached out to this woman who said, I'm going to make your career, she said, no, I don't make careers of only big people. (laughs) So it was all cocktail talk. Meanwhile, I had nothing to go on. But that was literally how I sort of went back to Harvard. Then I had decided I was going to run away to England and go to the Royal Academy of Music. That's how I made decisions. I'm going to do it, so I did it. I went to England. I sort of went to the door of the Royal Academy of Music, the Royal Conservative, and I said, I'd like, to, I'd like to go to school here. I'd like to learn here. And they said, sir, that's not how we do things. You know, you'll have to wait for the regular audition season. I said, no, but you really must hear me sing. They heard me. They accepted me. I got a great job there in like two days being a, uh, an assistant to a fellow who was in the diplomatic corps but who also had gone to Harvard. That was that, con- that, that connection there. I got chicken feet two days before I was supposed to start my program at the Royal Conservatory, and I came and I quit everything and came back to America. Can you believe that? I had auditioned for the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia for their opera program. They were already auditioning people to take the place of the one I had abandoned, and they let me in anyway, and that sort of got me back into the opera. Totally nonsense. (laughs) You you wouldn't want to write about it. Well, I mean, but to be fair, and again, the way I'm, I, what I'm hearing is, is it seems like a lot of things came easy for you. No, no, they didn't. They came stupidly for me. Well, I mean, but but to be fair though, you're making decisions. People, yeah. you know, you, I mean, Harvard. Hey, you're a great singer. Juilliard, you know, your 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 coach is go. You go there, right? Then you all of a sudden get an opportunity to be on stage. Then you get an opportunity. And so you're making decisions just based on what's coming up, right, in your life versus having any type of commitment or strategy or anything like that. I have the clarity of mind now to recognize I wasn't making decisions. I was rolling with the punches, as Mm -hmm. it were. And I'm not clear that woulda, shoulda, coulda, that it's pointless to do that. But as I've gotten older and worked with other people, I recognize that there's a big difference between making a a, a thoughtful decision and just saying, okay, (laughs) today is that. And for many years, that's what I was doing. Not doing myself, you know, I'm grateful for all those experiences. But I also recognize that a lot of that was just stumbling through. So what what woke you up? What made you, you know, have this epiphany in terms of, you know what, I'm just you know, doing stuff on a whim. I need to, you know, be a little bit more serious, concrete. I need to understand more about me. What what was the epiphany? What was the turning point? I'm not sure I've ever had one. I've tried <laughs> five years and I was singing a lot, though. You know, you know, you sing some, you're, you know, you're impoverished for the next four months. You sing some more sort of thing. When I, I came back to New York, I thought I should. And I wanted a plan B. I was at least smart enough to think that I wanted a plan B. Not, incidentally, something I would recommend for a committed artist. You don't need a plan B. All your plan is here. It's in that music. But I wanted a plan B. That was the downside of having gone to a place like Harvard. You know, somebody had a, a, an American Express card, and I wanted one of those sort of thing. So I got into Columbia, into their business school, although they were not going to accept me because they said, well, you're... Uh, your thinking is fine, but their math skills are suffering. Would you be willing to delay, to defer coming to Columbia for half a year and take, I don't know what it was, calculus? And I said, oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely won't get in after that. <laughs> we'll take him anyway. My game plan was to go to Columbia, get an MBA, ha, 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 and then put that in my back pocket 
and go back onto the operatic stage. That's literally what I thought I would do. Citibank had other plans for me. They said, well, that's really great. You go and sing at the Met all you want. But well, we want those student loans to begin in the month. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how Citibank had a, a different plan. They want their money. Yeah, so I had to get a job. So, and the rest is history. And here I am. <laughs> so listen, so when you say the rest is history, because you got your MBA uh, at Columbia. I did. And then you transitioned into HR. Am I correct? So... That was pretty much probably the only thing I was going to be able to do. I had no finance skills or, or any of that sort of thing, or strategy skills. And I, I shouldn't do myself. I should do myself some purpose. I, I had an instinct around, you know, what HR was about at the time. So it made sense that I would get an HR job, yes. Wow. And then so so let's let's just back up a little bit, right? We're talking opera. We're talking Harvard. We're talking, you know, a stage actor. We're talking, you know, traveling around the world singing. We're an an MBA in Columbia, and now you're going to be in corporate America doing HR. So, so tell us a little because I mean that that's a that's a different little little journey there. The only thing that hadn't changed as much as it might was Jim Jones, unfortunately. <laughs> like how so? To me, being in HR was you know you, being in corporate was you had a coach bag. You were Gucci, you know, you had uh, Brooks Brothers tassel loafers, you had suspenders and a, and a self-tied bow tie, and you wore Burberry. That's what I thought you were supposed to do. Oh, I looked the part. <laughs> Very much but, I, but again, I, I still didn't, I didn't recognize that. Now, now I do. Didn't have that type of, 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 of awareness, breadth of experience that would protect me, that would guide me through successfully a lot of those early experiences in corporate America. I was not successful at that point in my career in corporate America, not at all. So you, and again, I, 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 I love your fashion um, um, ideas. I mean, when I first got to corporate America, I had <laughs> I a cheap suit. <laughs> <laughs> I had some shoes that needed to be shined. You know, I had a raggedy belt. Okay. And, and so, so your, your, your idea of corporate America from a fashion standpoint is, Ooh, I, I love it. I love it. You were saying though, you still, you know, wasn't, um, and I want to use the word complete. You still didn't have an understanding of what it took to become successful in corporate America. So, so where did you find that? How did you find yourself? Because, you know, and look, the, the gym I met, you know, and, and full transparency, um, you know, I went to NAMIC executive leadership uh, development program uh, at the university of Virginia, at Darden school of business um, which was an eight month program, which was great. And then I think, um, one time, one day they came in and said, you're going to meet this guy named Jim Jones, James Jones. And he's a life coach, executive coach. And, you know, uh, we have, a, I think we have a couple of them. So we're going to split him up. He's going to work with some of you guys and somebody else is going to work with some of the others. I ended up getting the short straw. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I got Jim and it was one of the greatest experiences, the greatest thing that 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 happened to me. I mean, I learned so much from you. You helped me understand my identity issues, my sensitivities, struggles, and stuff to that nature. So when I hear your story, which is great, 
right? And then I'm here in Tony. I was just, I didn't even, I was just doing stuff based on a whim. I was, I didn't have no emotional, you know, uh, uh, sophistication when it came to emotional intelligence. I wasn't mature enough. You know, I came to corporate America and really didn't understand success. And then I sat here and learned, and a, and a bunch of my classmates, you know, Nicole, uh, excuse me, Danielle Scarborough, you know, you know, Nicole Husband, Sean, they all love you. We all have learned a lot from you. So I, I want to dive into that. You know, you said, hey, I wasn't ready to become successful. What, 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 what took you to that next level? Oh, gosh. <laughs> That's so hard to answer because, again, there was not sort of a week. It was not like the, the time, you know, the, the, the telephone call to my mother. I think over time, you sort of wake up or you go, you know, uh, forever to sleep sort of thing. And just coming coming to terms with my own authenticity, if that makes any sense, um, coming to terms with my own need to to connect with what I was doing, connect who I am with what I was doing, and those are not the same things always, uh, and being at, at, at peace around all of that. And again, it's a bitch process. I can't say that I'm there every day, but I think I'm pretty close to being there for the most time. It's just an, an acceptance of that, and also being in a... In a in, in, even in a corporate environment where I felt validated, I felt, uh, yeah, grounded and all of that. And it was simply my time to be there and, 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 and have that experience to me. So when you say validated, what, 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 what was the, when you say validated, like, what do you mean validated for you? What does that mean? Well, I don't want to get too raw for your audience there, but no, you know, no, no, no. This is a black executive perspective. We want to get raw. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't I don't, don't play basketball and, 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 and all that. And I know I talk funny and I read Jane Austen novels and all of that. And, you know, and, 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 and in my mind, feeling okay with all of that, not only okay with it, but feeling that, okay, this is my center. This defines me. Here it is. Take it or leave it. Can I shift and speak French? If you speak French, of course I can. But at the end of the day, I'm going to go back to being Jim Jones and it's going to be, a welcome to you to join me there, but I won't, I won't, there are aspects of myself I was no longer willing to, 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 to sacrifice for that. And I think I must have been doing that. Again, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Did I come to that in the middle of the night one day? But over time, uh, I had to recognize that, oh, and I was going to die, quite frankly, that I needed to make some, to take a stand around my identities, as it were, you know, there are several and, 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 and be okay around those. And I am. That is awesome, my friend. And listen, I know, you know, as I'm listening to you, I get goosebumps. I'm, you know, I know the audience, there's a, t all, there's a plenty of people who've been in that situation. Yeah. I can speak for myself. You know, I always felt that I, I needed to, you know, be somebody else to be liked, to be accepted, to, to, to be successful and and I struggle just being me. You know, people see me as this gregarious, you know, fun, you know, high energy. And at times I am that. Right. But there and you and I've chat. You've helped me with this. And there's times where I'm just quiet. I'm shy. I don't want to say nothing. To nobody. I don't want to be bothered. And, you know, I had to accept that. So let me ask you this. You know, there's a lot of professionals that deal with with that that really peeling back the onion to see not only who they are, but to accept 
who they are. What recommendations would you have for them? And again, I don't want to be arrogant enough to to say to someone, do this or do that, uh, because I don't think it's that easily packaged, number one. But a big part of it was understanding that this is who I am, and I want to really spend some time uh, and some courage around understanding that and, and going as deep as I can with this. This is what I do. What's the alignment that's possible? Because there are always going to be trade-offs. There are, there are always going to be aspects of myself which I need to, I'll be required to, to place aside for a moment. It's when it's becoming um, a function of, of, of placing aside and forgetting it and not going back to it and not reconnecting with it that I know I'm in trouble. And you will be in trouble, black, white, or indifferent. That will happen. And the pain will become such a can't balance it. That's when the stress becomes distress. And again, I spoke of speaking French and France. It's, you know, yeah, a lot of these things are part of your tactic. I know that tomorrow, in order to be accepted by this audience and validated by these particular circumstances and, and to be able to uh, have that propel me towards my goal, my business goals, I need to wear Burberry. I need to wear tassel It doesn't mean I'm not being who I am. It's saying this is a strategy. This is a tactic. It's when the tactics and, and the strategies overtake your sense of, of, of well-being that you're in trouble. And it can happen. I'm not mm. saying on any given day, but over time. You can be so mm. consumed by, you know, the, the, the affect of it all. So if I'm hearing, I hate to simplify it, but if I'm hearing, yeah. I'm hearing a, ba- a, a word balance, right? Because at the end of the day, we, you know, and, and, and let, let me back up for a second. Sure. What I'm hearing is that I'm me. Well, let me use me as an example. So, Tony, there's you are you. However, there's times where you need to, from a strategic standpoint, be able to do this, right? Because this audience needs you to be this, all right? The challenge is, is nine times out of ten, we get lo- we, we, we lose balance where now, where I'm, I'm placating this audience to be this, I become that all the time. And I forget my center in terms of who I really am. Is that what I'm hearing, Jim? I definitely have a part of it. And Tony, a part of me is the work of that center. And that's where the real work goes on. Once you're there and understand that and are, 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 are living in that center of, of values and, 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 and your pain or whatever it may be, you can do all the rest of that because that's what you do. I'm going across to this place now. What do I need to be successful there? You've always got a, you've, you've always got a, a, a choice. And that's the other part of it. You will always have a choice. Now, it's easy for me to sit here in my Brooklyn living room and talk about my choice. And you've got two girls to put through college, as it were. But it's always a choice. And there's always going to be a premium. There's always going to be a premium. There'll be a price tag on making some of those adjustments to be successful in corporate. There'll be a premium on getting two... Um, enmeshed in, 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 in self-investigation. What's the price tag I'm willing to pay? Right, right. So, you know, you've worked at, um, you've been an executive coach, um, um, life coach for, for years now. Yes. And obviously every human being is different. And you work with a lot of people. What some of the things that you've seen or you worked with, you can keep it at a high level, that you know, professionals struggle with in terms of corporate America and their and their uh, centered self. 
I'm going to repeat myself here. The, the what I do versus who I am conundrum. Find <laughs> 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 something that can be really, really wrenching for people. It really can. Again, of all stripes, you know, black, white, gay, straight, you called it, that what I do versus who I am and is the, is the, is the sacrifice to do this such that I am uh, annihilating mm. who I am. But that's all you got at the end of the day. I'm being incredibly simplistic, and perhaps that's, I'm being so simplistic because that's all I have to offer. What I do, who I, you know, who I am. Where I can those lines, what's the work of getting those as much aligned as I can? Because some of that you have any control over. What you do have control over is to spend the, the time to go deep <laughs> and have the courage to say what I am. This is who I am. This is where I live. And to say, and you know what? I'm going to find an appropriate way of sharing some of that with AA, with those people. I'm going right. to find a mechanism for bringing the what I am to what I do. It's tricky. Just you're strategic and tactical around it, you know? But I love that, though, because what you're saying is, is that um, it's important to, yeah, I, I, I got to do what I got to do. But if I can start bringing who I am to what I do, what I do, then I'm not going to get lost up in terms of what I got to do, what I got to do. My center is still going to be there and it's going to be actually spilling over in terms of what I do, what I got to do, what I got to do. Correct. I would say that more of what you are <laughs> shows up anyway. It just may be a blind spot. And you want to, again, manage the narrative. You want to understand what that's all about. What's showing up about me that uh, others are experiencing. And I want to, understand what that experience of them is all about. And of course you're going to get lost, but you'll be able to find your way back because you'll know where you need to be. And it's incredibly hard work and it never, never stops. And something is always derailing you <laughs> from that, that course of action. So let me ask you this in terms of, you know, I, I remember when you and I were chatting and uh, I was telling you a story and I was saying, you know, one of the things I always struggle with um, is that, I expect people to treat me the way I treat them, right? If I'm doing the right things to those individuals, they see it, and I'm expecting in return that they do the exact same thing. And then I was looking for a sympathetic ear because I was like, this should, be just, this should be just simple, right? And I was explaining that to you, and you looked at me and said, Tony, you can't control what they do to you, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought that was eye-opening for me. Well, you just said it, Tony. There's not people <laughs> that good luck with your expectations. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also who's that said, I'm also not responsible for what you think about me either. So there comes this moment that you go, you know, I'm doing as best I can and as authentically as I can and as in alignment with our goals and our, 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 our shared uh, outcomes as I can. Beyond that, okay. <laughs> and again, I'm being overly, overly simplistic because I have nobody to take care of but me and my, you know, my Whole Foods bill. And those other considerations and complex aspects of life all kick in. But still, at the end of the day, this is it. I'm doing the best I can. I'm as competent as I can. I'm as authentic as I can. And again, what I hoped we picked up on was that <laughs> you've said it as well as I could possibly you have no way of knowing what I perceive from you. You have no way of knowing what I need from you unless we've built the kind of relationship 
And I've understood myself well enough, and I'm courageous enough with myself that I say, Tony, this is what I need from you. The moment I look to you to satisfy that need, I'm in big trouble. Mm. So your dear wife, your lovely children, double A, none of us can do that for you. That core need you have to do for yourself. <laughs> it's a lonely place to be, but that's all you got. Because the moment you get to that place where you take responsibility for those core needs, the rest is going to fall into place. It's going to fall into the place it was meant to fall into. Right, right. So in other words, you know, be satisfied with what you do, who you are, and don't worry about what other people do, or more importantly, what they don't do. Do you mind if I give a different slight shading to please, that? Please, please, my friend. Around about satisfaction. Be sure of the work you're doing to be as much Tony Franklin as you can, the most authentic Tony Franklin, the most self-aware Tony Franklin, the most grounded Tony Franklin that you can be. The other has to, at the end of the day, take care of itself. It may not take care of itself in the way that you might have, you know, put in your, you know, your five-year plan. But Tony, it's all you got. The, the, the other side of that is just a lot of pain. It may be an extra trip to, <laughs> to uh, Martha's Vineyard, but what you got at the end of the day. And again, I'm not knocking any of that. Those are wonderful things to have. This is the man with the Burberry. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, is it really worth the, 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 the wear and tear on you, on your relationships, on your sense of self-worth? Maybe I say that because I never had those things, but uh, no, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Martha's Vineyard home, but uh, I, I, I have to believe that that's where it starts and that's, where, that's, that's what the journey is all about, going from you to you. I read in a book somewhere a quote that I thought was so powerful is, who am I and what would it take to be who I am? That was powerful stuff. Very powerful. That is powerful. And, 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 and piggybacking on that, the road from me to me and ultimately to me, how do you, how do you define that? What does that mean? I don't know. It sounded good when I wrote it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you, I've been with Jane Austen that day, and I thought that's kind of cool. Hey, hey. So <laughs> are you smart if I put it like that? <laughs> so are are you are you no matter what you went through, or no matter what I go through, or no matter what Double A goes through, or, or our audience, the journeys, the ups and downs, the indecisions, the decisions. That's you. Absolutely is. And that's a lonely thing sometimes to accept, but it still is what it is. It still is what it is. And again, you want love in your life. You want connection in your life. You want access to others in your life, of course, and have them have access to you. But at the end of the day, it's all about the work you're doing about Tony Franklin, about Double A, about Jim Jones. It's all we got. <laughs> it's not always a scary thing to have to, to contemplate, but there it is. <laughs> let, let me let me throw this at you. One of the things that we struggle with, uh, and you said this word a few times, um, self-aware, uh, self-awareness. One of the things that we struggle with, there's a lot of people who are not self-aware. Or they, when they look in the mirror, they are self-aware, but they don't like what they see. Oh, well, not that. <laughs> right? And then they go back to, going back to your point about being who you need to be for a certain audience. They rather be in that arena yeah. versus being in their own looking in the mirror arena. What would you say to those individuals? 
Again, I'm, I'm just not one to give advice because I struggle. No, I get the, it. I get it. I get it. I, it's, 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 <laughs> again, I'm going to repeat myself. It's all you got. It's all you got. And if you can do, play that other, do that other thing without causing yourself infinite pain, great. Be successful there. But at the end of the day, what do you have to go back to? What is the work you've done to say, I live here. And I'm grateful for living there. Uh. Yeah, I mean, listen, no. it, it can be, yeah. Well, you know what? At the end of the day, I think, you know, and that's why I'm so excited that you're here. Just being able to reflect, look back. I mean, you sharing your story today and you're like, look, it took me years to look back and say I wasn't here or I wasn't ready for this or, you know, I was making decisions based on this or calling your mother up and saying, hey, guess what? I know I'm gone. I know I'm, you know, uh, a grown man now and living abroad or whatever, but guess what? I just want to let you know, I got you. <laughs> I know what you were going through. I know what you were dealing with. Right. So I guess those light bulbs, uh, come up, uh, you know, come bright at some point in our lives. And more importantly, when they do come bright, we acknowledge them. Yes. Well, when my you, friend, uh, go ahead, you, finish your thought. You want to make sure when you get back home, you are there for you. How about that? That is, that is awesome. So tell me what the future holds for you. Ha, huh, don't know. The future defined in what I'll have for dinner this afternoon or <laughs> <laughs> I'm a coach, as I say, I love my work. Uh, you know, we, we're always hoping for, you know, that next fascinating, interesting contract. We all do that. We may say we don't, but we do. But I'm very grateful. Uh, so one of the things you and I, I wanted to ask you about this and I forgot you were able to meet James Baldwin. Is that correct? I did. <laughs> tell, tell us about that experience. Oh, when the last time I went to Europe to stay any period of time, I'd gone over, I already knew that I was going to go back to business school, but I had, uh, I, some producers came over from Paris and they were looking for, and I heard about this through, you know, my former arts uh, network. They were looking for a young black African-American male who spoke fluent French and who had a background in music. I thought, I got this, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> and being New York, of course, you go and there's a, there's a, there's a line five, you know, five blocks long of all descriptions. And you go, how you going to be black? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> but I, you know what? You hire me and I'll figure that out. And I'm not mad at them. Somehow well, I got this job. And you it said was it was a line so long all the way down. <laughs> New York. And I, you know, that, that's a, that whole acting world. Anyway, I, I did get that role. So I went over to Europe and I was there for six months in Paris narrating a, a show called The Gospel Caravan. And uh, James Baldwin had written it in conjunction with a French author by the name of Marguerite Yussenau. And it was about the history of gospel music. And they, so they had brought up all these gospel stars and who through, through music told the story of gospel. And I narrated it in French. So that was wow. it. Wow. He came to some of the early rehearsals. He did indeed. <laughs> did you guys hang out at all? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you made it. You were right there. I was thinking that you would be able to hang out with him. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Very funny. Oh, well, look, my friend, it's been a blessing to have you on. Um, final thoughts for the audience. What do you want to leave the audience? 
thought, no, be you, because ain't nobody else out there <laughs> has occupied that particular booth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you this. You were you tonight and really appreciate it. You've been a blessing in my life, and I can imagine to countless hundreds of others, you've really touched a lot of people in terms of helping them self-identify, deal with the minutiae that we all deal with in our head. So I love you a lot. You, you, I'm, I'm a big fan of yours. And listen, if somebody's listening to this and they like, hey, I love, I would love to connect with Jim Jones and sit down and just, you know, chat about, you know, myself and corporate America and how I can, you know, take my game to the next level, where would they be able to reach you? Probably the best is at LinkedIn, James C. Jones, and you'll see my company name there and reach out. I'd love to have that conversation. Well, I hope they do, um, because at the end of the day, you, like I said, are fantastic. I'm glad we're friends. As am um, I. It's been a blessing, my friend. So thanks a lot for appearing and sharing your story, as well as, you know, a lot of great uh, anecdotes and solutions on the Black Executive Perspective podcast. Thanks to you both. God bless. Have a wonderful holiday. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode, The Road from Me to Me and Ultimately to Me with Jim Jones. He was fantastic, outstanding. Love that he shared his story. And then obviously he talked about the self-discovery that he had, um, which was great. So based on that, I'm going to go into Tony's tidbit and today's tidbit is by Miles Monroe. The greatest discovery in life is self-discovery. Until you find yourself, you will always be someone else. Always be yourself. And that was by Miles Monroe. So thanks again for tuning in to another uh, episode of a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Please go to our website at www, a Black Executive Perspective podcast to sign up for updates. Uh, we're going to be launching our monthly newsletter soon. Please leave us a review. How did you like this episode? How did you like Jim? Do you have additional questions for Jim? Please don't hesitate to give us a rating. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, wherever you're able to listen to your podcast, follow us on our socials at LinkedIn, X, Instagram, YouTube at Tony Tidbit. BEP. For our great guest, Jim C. Jones, our executive producer, Double A, I'm Tony Tidbit. I love you a lot. We talked about it. Now we're out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, a Black Executive Perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle, and with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories.